Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago. I'm joined by my co-hosts today, uh, Jim Marty of Bridge West out in Colorado, Rob Hunt of Linnae Holdings uh, for the next little bit of time, uh, no longer on the West Coast, but finding himself out on the East Coast. And uh, we'll get around to saying hello to everybody in one second. I just want to let our fans know right now, do not move because we have an exceptional guest on our show today. And uh, given how many questions just the three of us have to ask him, uh, we've decided to forego the normal routine and just dive right into our interview uh, with Sandy Troy, uh, who has written a number of books on and about uh, the Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia. Rob, why don't you start off with uh, Sandy? I know you uh, were talking and you had a bunch of questions, so give it a shot. Sure, yeah. Sandy, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining us. And uh, thanks to our buddy Dave Branfin for, uh, for making this connection. You know, you've obviously been um, part of the Grateful Dead inner circle for, for years and years. You know, how did you, how'd you first get started with the Grateful Dead, and how did you start you know, sort of gaining the inner access that allowed you to get close enough to the band to be able to be a biographer? Well, um, in high school, uh, I was kind of a hip high schooler. And uh, I smoked pot in high school, and uh, I had a car. So this friend of mine, who in ninth grade would have beat me up, became sort of a hip dude by senior year. Because let's go to Woodstock, man, and get jobs. So I go, okay, but I ain't working. So we end up going there on Tuesday, and Woodstock started on Friday. And uh, sure enough, he got a job building the stage. And that kind of thing. I got a job counting naked girls in the lake, which I was uh, 17. It was the first time I saw naked girls. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and then the way Woodstock was laid out, they had a huge backstage area the size of two football fields that was fenced in. They had a bridge over the road and then the stage, and then the audience was on the other side. So... Our campsite was on the lake, which was behind the backstage area. It was kind of remote. Even when it was 400,000 people, there were very few people came to our campsite because it was too remote. The people that knew about the lake would be there, but you know they were busy swimming, not dealing with us. So I was had access to the whole backstage area, and I happen to know the guy running the stage. Uh, he was from the Phil Maurice, where I was a regular customer there, and his name was Muskrat. So he said, Sandy, I know you're not legit, but it's fine with me. You can hang out on stage. So I managed to get a, a security shirt because it had been drizzling, and the real security guards were cops and off-duty firemen. And I took a shirt off a clothesline and put it on. It was like three sizes too big, but it said Woodstock Security. So I looked legit, and the, the head guy didn't care. So I was actually semi-working security the whole time and I uh, my favorite band at the time was the Jefferson Airplane so uh, I hung out with them for hours because they the whole thing was running late so I was hanging out with Grace Slick who I admired tremendously and actually when Janis Joplin was on stage I hung out with her behind the amp to watch Janis perform and she was amazing so being the naive kid I was, I thought, you know, they were like rivals. They weren't rivals at all. They were good friends. And uh, she was amazing. And, you know, there was a lot of great acts. But the dead came on. I actually was working the gangplank that's done in front of the stage. 
It was me and a bunch of, you know, football-sized players, cops and firemen. So I was standing right in front of Jerry when the dead played. And despite, you know, the critiques, they weren't as bad as everyone says, including they didn't think they were any good. And it wasn't raining during their set. You know, their equipment may have been, you know, who knows what. But the love light was really good. I mean, Pigpen knows how to put a rave on, and it was a classic love light. So that's when I became a deadhead from an airplane head. And from that point on, I saw several hundred shows, uh, starting in 69. I saw another show at the Fillmore in November of 69, and that's the only show there's no set list of, as far as I'm aware of. Of all my shows, I have a set list of every single show, except November 69, and, you know, it'd be nice to find it, maybe it exists. You know, I'm sure they did, uh, you know, Dark Star, St. Stephen, the 11, Love Light, that, that was what they were doing a lot of back then. And, you know, uh, then they played at my university, Stony Brook. Okay, I went to Stony Brook. They did four shows at Stony Brook. I went to all four, including my birthday, Halloween. So it was, you know, at that point, I didn't know the band particularly, but it was at my school, so I was backstage hanging out with the band because it's a school, you know, it's a college. Nobody really cared. So I talked to Phil. I go, uh, can you guys do Dark Star? He goes, well, I don't know. I wouldn't count on it. But, you know, there were four good shows, decent shows. They weren't fantastic considering other shows that were played in 70. Like 21370 was my favorite show ever. I was in the front row. The Fillmore used to have mail order through the Village Voice. I got front row seats, 21370, which is considered one of the greatest shows ever. Dark Star, the other one, Love Light, 90 minutes long. And I was directly opposite Jerry. At the time I was doing yoga, I had really long hair. I was all in white and a beard. He's all in black and a beard. We were like polar opposites. And I was high on uh, LSD. And I, apparently he was. And we just had a great time. And that, from that point on, I knew he was going to write his biography. And uh, it happened. And, you know, when you're in an experience like that, you know, he literally, I was in the front row directly opposite him, three feet from him the whole night, and Pigpen was there. Can't beat an experience like that. Just cannot do it. And at the end of the show, they open the doors and the sun's coming up. And, you know, I was just listening to, uh, I think it's the King Beach Bowl, February 23rd, uh, 68. And, you know, those, those, that's why I became a dead head. You know, the sun comes up, blood red, eagles in the sky, the whole thing. New potato caboose. And I have a friend that's a really good musician from college. I moved off campus with upperclassmen, and he goes, you should listen to Bob Weir. That guy is good, and he wasn't kidding. And Bobby, you know, Jerry obviously was, and Phil were the geniuses. Bob Weir added that middle ground of broken chords and stuff like that that's really unique. And, you know, he sings a lot of the great songs. You know, you know that's it for the other one, into New Potato Caboose, and, the, you know, Anyway, that's that. That's how I became a deadhead. A lot of drugs. That's how you become a deadhead. That wins the award for the best story of a new deadhead among any of us, I have to say. Well, I have a better story than that. When I, they were playing in Alaska, so I decided to go. And uh, 1980. Yep. And uh, I didn't go to Egypt. That was a big mistake. It was only a thousand bucks, including airfare, the whole thing, and you're hanging out with the band the whole time. You know, there's only like 200 Americans that went to Egypt. 
and it was very intimate. You know, I could have hung out with the band. I'm now very good friends with Bill Walton because I there's a band in San Diego called the Electric Waste Band, and he performs with them every week. And uh, so we become friends in this. But, you know, he's really good friends with Bob Weir and whoever else. So he's a very humble guy. He's a gentleman. But um, what was I saying? So I forget what I was Alaska, which was in a high school dream. It was, it was Diamond um, High School, I think. So I flew from L.A. The plane stopped in Seattle. Everybody got off the plane except me. And uh, it was a champagne and salmon flight. So I go, you know, this is great. I'm going to be, you know, private flight to Alaska. So I'm sitting there, you know, humming to myself. All of a sudden, the Grateful Dead get on the plane. The entire band, all the roadies, the wives. So I was hanging out, and Jerry was the only one that sat in first class. Because, <laughs> you know, it's open seating. You can sit wherever you want. So, you know, they tend to give Jerry his space. First of all, they're all friends, okay? You know, when you're in the Grateful Dead, Jerry is a guy in the band. You know, they all know he's the leader, but he's, you know, he doesn't say I'm the leader. You know, he's like the spiritual center of the Grateful Dead. And Phil's a genius, so, you know. And I became friends with Phil because I would go to Terrapin Crossroads a lot. So anyway, Jerry's sitting in first class. I go up and sit next, and we chit-chat, and this and that. So it became, instead of a champagne and salmon flight, a champagne and cocaine flight. And, you know, everybody's doing blow. My friend, who was their dealer, Wheelchair Al, who, uh, he's passed away, but he was in a wheelchair. That's why they call him Wheelchair Al. He had a bunch of blow with him, and, you know, everybody's doing blow on the plane. And, you know, what are they going to do? They're either going to turn around and report him to the, uh, the narcs, or they're going to keep going and let them have people have a good time. So they chose to let us have a good time. So then, you know, it was an unbelievable flight. I didn't hang with Jerry the whole time I gave him his space. You know, I was talking to some other people, Dan Healy. That's how I really got into the whole thing, because I was friends with Dan Healy. And, you know, he, not, he didn't get the recognition until I interviewed him. I mean, I'm sure people, some people did. But I interviewed him for Relics Magazine and uh, in San Diego, January 8th, 1980, I think it was. No, it was 78, excuse me. And uh, who shows up? Uninvited, Jerry Garcia. Five minutes into the view, he just walks in, plops down on the couch, and never leaves for the next three hours. And that guy has the gift of gab. So we, it would turn into a Garcia interview. It ended up being in two consecutive issues of Relics because it was really long. And, you know, it was very kind of a technical. I studied up. If you ask me now what I asked them then, I wouldn't remember, but it was a lot of technical stuff about the sound system, this and that. And Jerry just piped in on almost every question he would answer it. And, you know, just Jerry was a very humble guy. You know, that's all I can say is he didn't want to be a guru. All he wanted to do was play guitar. And unfortunately for him, he became this exalted character that basically kind of ruined his life because he couldn't have any privacy. You know, he used, you know, I would go to, uh, I lived, I moved to San Diego to go to law school and people asked me, why didn't you move to the Bay Area? I got into a law school up there, but if I went up there, I probably wouldn't have, you know, I didn't want to devote my life to the Grateful Dead. 
you end up, you know, carrying uh, their briefcase, whatever. It's I apparently, and I don't know if it's true or not, when Dennis McNally, I got offered the job that McNally had got, and I turned it down. And uh, apparently when he started, they tied him up on a chair and, you know, tortured him. You know, the roadies, you know, uh, Big Steve, and, you know, they were just skating around, but, you know, getting tied up is not exactly fun, but... Anyway, Dennis is a great guy, and he wrote a book also. I wrote Captain Trips, which I happen to have right here, because I don't even have my own book. I have to order it. I have my, you know, I have the heart. I have some copies, but, you know, this fan of mine wanted to buy a book, so I had to order it. Anyway, Jerry was just a sweet man, and Mountain Girl, who I became friends with, a sweet woman. But, you know, Jerry was all about music. And that's ultimately why they broke up, because he only wanted to play music. He was, you know, he was a decent father when he was around, but he was never around. And Mountain Girl didn't want to go on the road and be a groupie, so she stayed home with the kids and this and that. And then, you know, Jerry uh, met Deborah Coons, who wormed her way in. And she's a wealthy trust fund baby who's very attractive. So she got into Jerry's pants, however you want to say it. And they had a fling for a few years, and then they broke up. And then he married her at the end, which was a big mistake. Because when Jerry passed away, she wouldn't let Mountain Girl go to the funeral, which is a bunch of crap. She was a power tripper. And, you know, she, Mountain Girl is a legendary character. She's like, you know, Ken Kesey, whatever. Deborah Coon's just a rich lady who happens to be good looking. And I'm sure she's got other attributes. You know, she's a filmmaker, whatever. But you, there's only one Mountain Girl. There's only one Jerry, and they were destined for each other. So let's get on with the questions because I'm getting tired of hearing myself talk. Sure, I'll dive in. I've you know got a whole bunch of them. But let me um, just finish up that one story. So when we got to Alaska, I get off the plane with Jerry, and I'm hanging out at the luggage carousel with him. I go, "Hey man, you think I can carry a guitar for you?" He goes, "No, I think I can do it, man." <laughs> I thought that was funny. So you said, you know. Jerry never wanted to be a guru. He never wanted to be that, but he was. And and there were, you know, so many deadheads who, you know, lived and died. If Jerry said one word from the microphone during the show, people went crazy and, you know, danced around. Jerry's talking to us. How did he handle that? I mean, I, I know there was a lot of drugs and everything, but but more than that, as a guy who, you know, knew him and talked to him, how did he internalize and handle this notion that, like, when he walked on stage, people expected miracles from him? He ignored it, basically, you know, he was just a musician, and when you're put in that exalted position, you just have to ignore it, you know, what are you going to do, you, you know, you don't have the answer to cure for cancer, you don't have the answer for uh, the war in Afghanistan, you don't have the answer to anything other than, I want to play my guitar and, you know, write some great songs, you know, him and Hunter were unbelievable, their songwriting is, you know, unbelievable. You know, it amazes me, because lately I've been a big fan of the Stones, you know. Keith Richards and Mick written some unbelievable songs. So have Garcia Hunter. I wrote one song, and my friend goes, don't ever play that for anybody. It's the worst song I've ever heard in my life. So, so Sandy, what was, it, what was it like going through an airport with Jerry Garcia? Well, you know, Alaska was very uh, low-key. There's hardly anybody there. So, you know, it wasn't like people rushing Jerry's there, oh my God, and it was like, you know, just like going with your uncle 
Joe at the airport. I mean, you know, there was nobody there to recognize. So it was just very normal. Yeah, over the time you wrote Captain Trips, um, obviously you had unfettered access, you know, to Garcia. I know in his private life, he was really private and spent most of his time, you know, with John Connor, with Rock Scully, and just a really small handful of people that when you were up there doing these interviews, like, I think you were probably sitting in his home in Marin most of the time getting that work done. What was, you know, what was the private life like when, when he's away from it, where it's just him and his guitar hanging out around the house? I've spoken to Trixie about this a little bit, and she's given me some great anecdotes of kind of like when she, you know, the time she has spent there, Annabelle, same thing. But from your perspective, while you're covering him and really trying to get a sense of having someone open up to give you, like, who they are as a person, you know, what, what was that, uh, that time like? Because I think that's kind of the more interesting time for me is, you know, what, what the stuff we don't see. Yeah, well, Jerry as I said, was obsessed with music. Like, when he first started, he practiced eight hours a day. And, you know, that's why he got so good, because he, you know, he's got an innate ability, but he practiced, practiced, practiced. And, it, you know, it was amazing that he was able to do that. You know, this was like in the mid-60s and stuff. And, you know, I just listened to, uh, like, them from 65, you know, they had a really kind of tinny sound. You know, the Jerry's guitar sound evolved to be more mellow. I don't even know the right word, but it had a much more pleasing sound than a tinny. They sounded like a surf band at the beginning. Pigpen was really the heart and soul of the band, and Jerry will tell you that. And he's the one that wanted to go electric, you know. And Pigpen was the real deal. He was the real blues guy. And, you know, you can't fake that. That guy was really lived the blues and he drank like a, you know, too much. That's why he died, you know, but he was the man, you know, the guy could sing the blues like nobody else, like Janice. Right, right. His father had a, a blues radio station in Oakland, right? Yeah, yeah, that's how he grew up with the blues. So he grew up listening to that stuff. And, you know, it's funny, my right. kids... Grew up listening to Grateful Dead, and they're not deadheads in the least. You know, they're all three musicians, and, you know, one of them's a famous musician, a band called Deep Valley. She's toured with the Stones, Chili Peppers, played Glastonbury. You know, her best friend is Mick Jagger's daughter. The other one is in a band called Safety Orange, which is like a surf band from San Diego, and they're really successful, not com commercially, but he plays every weekend before COVID. He's making like 50 grand a year being a musician. And the other one's a blues guitarist, and she lives in New York. So, you know, they're all three really fine musicians. They grew up listening to music, and that's what gets into your soul. So Pigpen grew up listening to blues, and he obviously... First of all, Pigpen... This is a funny story. I went on a teen tour, so I don't know if any of you guys from the East Coast, but the teen tours was a thing in the 60s. You come from a well-to-do family, which I did. You put your kid on a Greyhound bus for two months, and you never see him again. And they have chaperones. It's all like 30 kids on a bus traveling. You know, we went first to Niagara Falls. We left from New York. Then you go, you know, east or west. You go, you know, to whatever cities you go to. Chicago, Philadelphia. Philly is the next city. See the Liberty Bell. Then you go to Chicago, blah, blah. Eventually, we ended up in San Francisco, this was 67. I found the itinerary. I was in San Francisco, July 6, 1967. So we get off the bus, and standing there in front of the Fairmont Hotel, 
and a convertible pulls up with the top down with somebody love blasting on the radio. I thought, this is my kind of town, you know. So there were three of us on this teen tour that were kind of hip. So one of them said, yeah, you should hear this band, The Grateful Dead. They're really good, you know. Which, unfortunately, I didn't take them up on it until 69. I otherwise have been a dead since 67. But um, we did go to Haight-Ashbury, walked around. We went, you know, it was really a mellow scene back then. And, you know, that's the funny thing is I didn't follow his advice to become a deadhead in 67. That's when the dead's music evolved and became more, you know, psychedelic. And, you know, 67 has some decent music. 68 has got great music. And 69 is, like, in my opinion, the best year of the dead, 69 and 70. But, Sandy, during that time, I mean, there's a lot of cross-pollination between, um, you know, Jorma Kalkinen and, and um, Marty Ballin and, you know, members of the Dead. Those guys were all hanging out with each other playing shows together, too, right? So even if you're an Airplane fan, there, there had to be some cross-pollination between the bands. Yeah, I mean, there was, but it's a different style of music, you know. I think it's unfortunate that Hot Tuna was formed. I mean, I like them, but I like the Airplane better than Hot Tuna. And, you know, Jack and Jorma, for whatever reason, moved on their merry way. You know, their style is a lot different, you know. Jerry's style is more mellifluous. Jerry plays like a saxophone. You know, he plays endless notes that are totally melodic and grab your soul. Jorma doesn't play, you know, Jorma's a great guitar player, but it's more, you know, shredding. I would call it shredding than, you know, soulful music. Jerry, for whatever reason, is a soulful player. And that's what made him so appealing to people. The soul of Jerry was exposed to his guitar playing. It just came naturally. You know, he didn't wake up. I'm going to play soulfully. That's just how he played. And Bobby fit in like a glove. And Phil's a freaking genius. So you know, the three of them made an incredible band. And you got the real blues singer Pigpen, and then you know the two drummers. It's funny because I moved to New Mexico. My first job was assistant DA in Albuquerque, and my cousin was the DA, so I said, I don't want to do drug cases, any victimless crimes, put me right in the violent crime unit, murders, you know, armed robberies, this and that. But anyway, in 1980, the Dead played their 15th anniversary show in Boulder, so I went to that, because I live right there, and there was a guy backstage, I was hanging out with Brent at that time, that's another story, I met Brent and Brent was picked on also, when he was the new guy, and him and I were the same age, so we hung out a lot. I actually stayed at his house. We drove, he lived in Concord, California, we would drive around in his car, and we were listening to the radio and feel like a stranger came on, so we sang the chorus together. So that was a lot of fun. <coughs> but anyway, at this show, the 15th anniversary show, there's a guy backstage wearing a Grateful Dad t-shirt. So I said, "Who? oh, I'm Bill Kreutzmann's dad. He was William Kreutzmann Sr., <clears throat> and he was a lawyer. He had moved to Albuquerque because his wife had emphysema, something like that, and the air is very dry there, so they were living right near me, so we'd have dinner together. And the interesting thing is Billy never knew this, Billy Kreutzmann. You know, I didn't go tell him, oh, I'm friends with your dad or whatever. I never did mention it. And of all the people in the band, he's the guy I know least. Even though I knew his dad and his mother, it's pretty bizarre. But that was fun because... Uh, I hung out at the hotel. They were staying at like the Holiday Inn or something like that in Boulder. And it was two shows. So I was in the same hotel as them, motel, whatever you want to call it. So that was the one time Jerry was holding court. He had a private room 
where he's sitting in a, a, a black leather armchair, just holding court. Anybody who wanted to come in, he would talk to them. You know, not that many people knew about it, because, you know, you got to know they're at the hotel. you got to know Jerry's doing this and that. I mean, I knew it, so I was hanging out with him, and he was very cordial. I, you know, that was the most cordial I've ever seen him with fans. He was just sitting in his chair. Anybody that came in, he would talk to her, answer questions, this and that. It was really amazing. Meanwhile, Bob Weir is being chased by a groupie down the halls, around the corner. You know, he's running around being chased by this little chickadee. That was pretty funny. And then, you know, I went in a limo with Brent to the gig, and that was fun. And, uh, you know, those shows were decent. You know, I hate to be a snob, but, you know, the, the shows after 72 are really second rate because Pigpen died. And they stopped playing that psychedelic music that they're known for. You know, 69, 70 is the epitome of that stuff. You know, when TC joined the band, that was a major plus. And those guys were freaking fantastic. You can go online right now. In 69, you can listen to every single show. from. I just heard, uh, I think it's 2769 Pittsburgh. I'd never heard it before. It's got the best 11 I've ever heard. Better than Life Dead. It's, if you haven't heard that show... That is one of the best shows they ever played. Okay. Just a random show from 69. Every show from 69 is killer. Because they're rep, you know, they did Alligator, Dark Star, St. Stephen, the 11, Love Light. The full, that's it for the other one, Sweet, with New Potato Caboose. This was the meat and potatoes of the Grateful Dead. I was lucky enough to be there for the best years. And, you know, what can I say? I still enjoyed, I went to 250 shows. I enjoyed them all, but, you know, it's a whole different ball game. When you're hearing, you know, Bob, the Bob Weir's, you know, one show in San Diego, when I interviewed Jerry, he had laryngitis, so it was the Bob Weir show, he sang every song, which is probably my least favorite show I ever went to, but, you know, whatever. You know, Bobby wrote some good songs, but he doesn't do them now, he only sings Jerry's songs. You know, you put John Mayer and Bob Weir together times ten, they don't equal Jerry, so don't do Jerry's songs. How about, you know, the music never stopped playing in the band. Bobby's written some great songs. Yes, yes. Does he play him? No, he doesn't. He plays Jerry's songs. Thank you for saying that, Sandy. And Bobby, get a, get a haircut and shave. He might look, you know, 20 years younger than, like, the old man. But he doesn't listen to me, so whatever. You should listen to his wife. That's another funny story. I was hanging out with Matthew Kelly because I promoted a tour called Chautauqua which was the David Nelson band, Kingfish, and uh, the Nerfs, the New Riders. So I became really friendly with Matthew, and he's a sweetheart. That's Bob Weir's best friend, Matthew Kelly. He invited me to go on tour with Kingfish with Bob Weir playing, which was fun. So we played tennis somewhere in Arizona. I don't remember where, Flagstaff. So he goes, well, I'll meet you in the bar. You know, we, we had to take showers, so I got into the bar before him. I'm sitting at the bar, and all of a sudden, Natasha comes up to me. You can't be in here. Why? Because Bobby's in here. Bobby's sitting like 30 yards from me, and I can't be in a public bar at a public hotel. I didn't say any of that. I was thinking of that. You know, She was just trying to protect her man, like I'm some predator, right? So I go, I'm here with Matthew. Oh, you're here with Matthew. That's different. You're cool then. Yeah. Jill Lesh is sort of the same way, you know. She's the same way with Phil. You know, they have that club, Terrapin Crossroads. She's not the easiest person to deal with either. But, you know, 
you got to do what you got to do. So anyway, let's get back to what you're asking. Well, here, Sandy, I was going to ask you this question. You mentioned uh, Jill Lesh and, 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 you know, old dead versus new dead. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me after Jerry died and we started to see all the different forms, the other ones and the dead and dead and co and further, they expanded their set lists back to include songs from the late 60s and early 70s that the dead hadn't played in years. That's correct. And, and it was absolutely wonderful to hear. And so my question for you... It's not they. The only thing Phil that... did it, okay? There's no they. Phil picked those songs. Okay, yeah. Phil... For, for the Fairly Wells, Phil actually wrote the set list for both Friday nights. Those Friday nights were all about the old songs. Yeah, Phil, like, you know, if I went to the Santa Clara shows. The first night was Phil's night. It was incredible with Trey. He did a half decent job. And the second night was the Bob Weir show. All the mediocre cowboy songs. You know, I mean, they're good songs. I'm just saying, you know, Bobby will never be Jerry, and that's a fact. So why don't you stop trying to be Jerry? Well, I, I, I agree with that, but it seems to me the one factor that's different is Jerry was no longer around, and I'm wondering, was Jerry the reason that a lot of those tunes were not played for a number of years? Well, he just got tired of some of them, you know. And like Dark Star, I happened to be at a show, and I asked him if... In Alaska, I said, hey, man, you're going to do Dark Star? I wouldn't count on it, man. And they didn't do it, you know. They saved that for special occasions like 1231-78, Closing in Winterland. That was, a, you know, every, I was with Dick Latvala, who's a good friend of mine. I actually got Dick the job with the Grateful Dead. And I had gone, to, after the interview with Jerry, he gave me passes for years, which became a big burden because all my friends counted on me to bring all the taping equipment. So I was a schlepper carrying, you know, heavy taping equipment backstage. But at Santa Barbara, I said, Dick, you know, I'm going to Santa Barbara. I'm going to be hanging with Jerry. He sent me like an ounce of killer bud from Hawaii. I gave it to Jerry, and a week later, he's working for the Grateful Dead. You know, that's a slight shortening of the story, but that's how he ended up working for the Dead. And in my book, One More Saturday Night, he wrote, because I interviewed him for the book, to the guy that got me the job. Wow. I mean, Dick had good taste in Grateful Dead, that much I know. Like, I just listened, like yes. I said, King Beach Bowl 68 is one of the best shows ever, Violi Blues, which is one of my favorite songs. You know, Phil does It's a Dick's song. Picks? Yeah. It's and so nice. is that show from uh, 1970 that you were talking about, the February show from 1970, that's a Dick's Picks. Yeah, that's one of the best shows ever. But... Dick's Picks 4, Valentine's Day 70. You know, Dick had great taste. You know, he was a sweet man. I'm friends with his wife, Carol, and I was friends with Dick and this and that. Dick used to, you know, what he would do would be to, um, he would send you, like I'd send a box of tapes and he'd send back some other things, you know. We traded for a long time and then you know, he would always tell us that he would get a job working for the Grateful Dead and we never believed him. So, in fact, he did, and, you know, because we, we were, first of all, Rob Bertrando is like a big taper, but he doesn't get the recognition. He's a doctor and whatever, I don't know why, but it was Dick Latvala, Jerry Moore from Relics Magazine, Bob Menke, who's known as Mr. Tapes, and me, and we would hang out a lot, and <clears throat> Bob Menke has the biggest dead collection there is in the world, probably, but, you know, it's... Now that everything's online, so it's a little different. But, you know, Dick and I went to the closing of Winterland together, and we had a good time, and, uh, 
we had a lot of fun. And, and, and what about Dave, now that Dave is doing the picks? What do you think about him? He's got good t- I don't really know the guy, but, um, you know, he puts out great, great shows. I mean, going into the vault, I went in the vault once. You know, it's amazing. You know, all the shows are there and stuff. Thank God all those shows were recorded. You know, the Betty boards filled in a big gap because uh, Osley was, you know, stopped doing it. And, you know, there's a certain gap there. Actually, I didn't know this until recently. Like, the Capitol Theater shows were taped by a private guy. And, you know, Osley didn't tape those shows. Some guy taped them. Uh, uh, I forget his name. But in 1970, all those, you know, 11, 8, 70 is the Capitol Theater. There's other Capitol Theater shows that are incredible. From March is a Capitol Theater show. And they really played, for whatever reason, exceptionally well to Capitol Theater. I don't know why, but... And then, what's his name bought it? Peter Shapiro bought the Capitol Theater. And he's actually Phil's right-hand man. He signed a deal with Phil to be the promoter of all school shows, except the Terrapin. And I believe, I just heard a rumor, he bought Terrapin. I'm not sure if that's true or not. But it wouldn't surprise me, because they were getting tired of, you know, running a club and this and that. Okay. Well, let me ask you this, if I can, Sandy. Um, clearly, I think it, it, it would, you know, be hard to be able to talk about Jerry Garcia and not talk about his diabetic coma in 1986, what it did to him, what it did to the band. You know, its impact on me was I was a young deadhead, very excited to see them come back and finally play again at the Fox Theater in St. Louis. And we all had our tickets for those shows. And a few weeks before, he fell into the diabetic coma. And I still have the tickets just to show people that I really had him in the Fox Theater in the second row and missed the opportunity. But what always amazed me was the stories I heard was as he came out of the coma, he had forgotten how to play the guitar. He had forgotten a lot of things. But before the year was out, he was back playing with the band again. Yeah, well, Merle went. Merle Saunders, who I knew really well, was a sweetheart, was like his best friend. He showed him how to... You know, but Jerry didn't forget those chops, thank God. I was just thinking that the other day, you know, because I've been listening to a few shows. You know, there's a lot of video online of, you know, shows from after that. And, you know, he was damn good. And maybe that's just like you say, when when you practice as much as he did over the years, it's just burned in your brain no matter what happens to you. Yeah, exactly. So thank God he didn't lose his chops. That would have been horrible. I just missed my Fox Theater show, but that's okay. You know, I was, I was, I'm from St. Louis. I was too young when they played there in the late 60s, and then all of a sudden they were going to play there in 1986, and, uh, you know, unfortunately it wasn't to be. But, they didn't uh, play there after that? Not, not at the Fox, no. They, they, in fact, they, they dropped St. Louis off their list for a long time, from 82 until the mid-90s, uh, 93 or so. They, they just kept skipping St. Louis. It was very frustrating for me. I tell my parents, I have to... They say, you can't see the Grateful Dead in St. Louis? I said, they're not playing here. What do you want me to do? Yeah, well, an interesting aside, which has nothing to do with that. In 1964, my best friend, who's now a judge, we were going to go to the World Series in Yankee Stadium to see Yankees versus the Cardinals. So we were going to get up at 6 in the morning, where we lived on Long Island, you take the train, then the subway, and we were going to try to get tickets outside. And it turned out his father was going to some... uh, charity function and bought all the tickets. They were auctioning off two World Series box seats. He bought them all, so he comes home at midnight. Boom! So we went, we were right on the field for the Yankees game against St. Louis, which unfortunately they lost 4-3. Well, depends how you look at it. I'm a Cardinals fan. A foul ball came right to my hand, and my friend stuck his mid out and knocked it away. I could have killed him, but 
I did oh. win the hot dog in the contest. The Dead back then played like, you know, some really weird venues, like somewhere in the Bronx. I think they played at an outdoor venue. I can't remember the name of the place. They played, you know, Queens. You know, they played all over the damn place. And then, you know, like I said, Stony Brook, four shows, my alma mater, you can't beat that. They didn't do Dark Stars, and they didn't do any of the classic songs, and they did do that except for the other one. And they did the last Why Will We Blues they ever played, so that was cool. That's the, that's the one that I really miss, because it seems in, in every formation they've been in since Jerry, Violently Blues has become a staple again. And I, I love that tune so much. And I always thought for Jerry, it would be a no-brainer. There's very few lyrics. You don't really have to remember a lot of lyrics. You just jam it out for a few minutes. Yeah, well, I talked to Phil about that, and I would always tell him that's my favorite jam you know, other than Dark Star, but he goes, yeah, I love that song. So he would st- he started playing it. I don't know if it was after that, but he did start playing it a lot. Hmm. But all those classic songs, you know, Phil brought back, you know, it wasn't Bobby. Okay. okay. So I, I totally hear you on like the Primal Dead and like a lot of the songs that were like the, uh, the, the cornerstone of like 69 and 70 Grateful Dead. But then you think about all the songs that came out, you know, in the years that you don't think they're necessarily playing as musically tight as they might have been in the early days. But, you know, what do you think about the songwriting that came out when, as far as like Hunter Garcia collaborations that happened in the seventies and the eighties and getting songs like so many roads coming in towards the end, or even like, yeah, that's you a, know, that's um, standing on the moons or some of the other Jerry ballads. Yeah. So many roads is one of the best songs they ever wrote, you know, but there's a lot of <clears throat> what I would call mediocre songs, you know, fillers like Liberty. You know, that's not my favorite song. <laughs> I, I'm laughing about that because my buddies and I, we saw them all through the 80s and, you know, until the end. And Liberty was, it was, it was kind of like day job for us. It was a song we could just never get around. But it seemed like Phil loves it and plays Liberty all the time. That's the song we used to say. Not that song, but that was the song. You know, there were songs you could go take a pee to. Right. Yes, definitely. We knew those songs. Yes. CC Ryder for the third time in five shows. I'll be back in a minute. <clears throat> and then, you know, like, Road Jimmy, I never really liked until recently. I All of a sudden, I like it after, you know, 30 years. It kind of sounded better to me, you know. Because it's, you know, Jerry, it's a classic song, and Jerry sings the shit out of it. So. Yes, he does. And I find that as well, that some songs that I've been listening to just forever, now I start Black Peter is a song that I really grew into in the last few years, and... Now, you know, I'm upset with myself for not valuing it more when I heard him playing it all those years. Yeah, well, that song I felt similarly to, except the, the jam is unbelievable, Black Peter. That's when Jerry would cut loose, you know, the final few minutes of that song. He really yep. cut loose. Yep. One of the things I think that, that made a difference for me was when they finally started, you know, publishing all the lyrics. And, and I could really have a chance to go back and understand the words that Garcia was singing, you know, the words that Hunter had written. You know, and, and a song like Black Peter actually has a whole story behind it with characters and everything right. that I never really understood. And now that I, I see the names and I know the stories, it just makes all the difference when you listen to that tune and understand the message that they're conveying. Yeah, well, you know, basically the Primal Dead Air, you know, China Cat Rider is one of their best freaking songs. For whatever reason, they really, you know, hit the gold mine that that. Those those songs are just beyond compare. China Cat Rider is one of the best songs ever, and you know Scarlet Fire. I, I'll agree that one. You know that's close second. That's a killer. Scarlet Fire is unbelievably good too. 
helps Slip Franklin, you know, that's killer. They came up with some good stuff, but, you know, the Bob Weir story, you know, he just played a lot of mediocre songs. I mean, you know, they're not mediocre in the general sense. He can sing the shit out of them. But, you know, a lot of the songs he chooses to play, uh, what's the throwing stones? I mean, come on. It's okay, but, you know. That song came out in 19, well, they started, we started seeing them play it in 83 or 84, even though it didn't come out on the album for a few years. And we were at the University of Michigan taking, you know, a, like a Vietnam and the artist political class. And our project at the end of the year, we used Throwing Stones and, and sat down and there were, there were no lyrics published. And we listened to it over and over and over again until we thought we had all the lyrics to it and, and tried to incorporate that into our, uh, into our final project for the class and everything. And, I mean, it had, a, it had a very strong political feel. I, I agree with what you're saying. To me, I love the song Not Fade Away. I think it's a tremendous song. And yeah, I, that's a classic. But it, it began to bother me when they started ending shows with throwing stones into Not Fade Away because you knew where they were going, you knew what they were doing. And, it was, and half the fun was not being able to predict where they were going to go. And pretty soon it, it, it got a little too predictable. Well, you know, that's the thing also is uh, like 73, though I, you know, I said 70, 73, they broke out at some killer songs. Eyes of the World back then was totally different. It was amazing. I went to uh, 6, 9, and 10, 73, RFK Stadium, and that was the two. 6, 10 is one of the best shows I ever went to. With the Almond Brothers, and then when they, you know, the eyes back then were totally different, incredibly beautiful song, and all the other ones that came out then, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but you know, they, you know, I really never liked Estimated Eyes. I thought, you know, Estimated's a great song on its own, but it kind of, you know, waters down Eyes of the World because you always know it's coming next, like you said, you know. Well, right. You know, Eyes by itself is killer. It's a you know yes. a jazz classic, jazz rock classic, and you know eyes of the I mean uh, estimated boom 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 you know that's a cool sure totally cool thing. But every time they played Esto, you knew they were going into eyes. And, you know, seeing them do it fifty times gets a little predictable. You know, but you know China Cat Ride, you don't feel that way. Well, it seemed to me that the, 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 the set opening multiple song runs that you were just mentioning, you know, that those were such an ingrained part of the show that, you know, we love China Rider, we love Scarlet Fire, we loved Help Slip, Not Franklin's. I mean, those were, those were you know, the, and, and you mentioned uh, uh, Jill. In 2010, I saw a further show in uh, um, the Auditorium Theater in Chicago where the dead had played, but I never got to see them there. But it was wonderful to see further there. And one of the nights we were there, they closed the first set with China Rider. They opened the second set with Scarlet Fire. And they closed the second set with Help Slip Frankie. Oh, my God. And I thought I had never seen all three of them in one show before. And when when I saw it posted online the next day, somebody underneath had put a note that said, thanks, Jill. So I assumed that she had something to do with putting the set list together. Wrong. Never happened. Oh, well, there you go. Never happened. Who put those set lists together? Probably Phil. Phil and Bobby, you know. Phil became the Jerry, you know. That's why there was a big rift because Mickey Hart got into it with Jill Lesh, and that's the last time Phil ever played with him again. He, he picked his wife over Mickey Hart, though he did agree to do those five shows, which he didn't really want to do, but he had to do the five reunion shows. But you can't get in a fight with Jill Lesh and expect to win. 
that's why he won't play with them anymore. Yeah, but, but I mean, a lot of people have gotten in fights with Jill Lesh. She's got she's got a notorious reputation of being a difficult woman to to sort of work with, and I've heard it from you know a lot of people that have had interactions with Jill that you know she is always the uh, the one that caused uh, a fair amount of friction among you know uh, Phil and the other band members. Yeah, well, Jill is, for want of a better word, the boss. She's Phil's boss, and when she's around, she's the boss of everybody. But the the musicians don't feel that way. But the reality is, she's the boss. Because Phil's the boss, and if Phil says Jill's the boss, then she's the boss. All Phil cares about is plugging in his bass and playing music. That's it. He doesn't make any decisions about anything. Just plug in, go home, and do whatever he does. You know, when he goes home, you know, he just wants to play bass. He's not a youngster. He's like 80 years old. The guy is, we're lucky he's still alive. He had a liver transplant. You know, he's had whatever he's done. You know, he's lucky he's still around. And I got to hang with him for years because I would live. I moved to Marin. I was going to Terrapin every freaking night, and Phil was there every night. I saw his 50th birthday show in the uh, the Cap Center in Landover, Maryland, and I thought, you know, what an experience to be able to see this guy as he turns 50, you know, and that's 31 years ago now, which is crazy for me to think that. Yeah, I mean, we're lucky he's still alive, let's face it. We're lucky that, you know, Mick and Keith are still alive. You know, those guys are legendary. I consider them the greatest rock band in history. Someone put online in response to that, the greatest English band of the Stones, the greatest American band is the dead, basically true. Although I, I, I like to say I think that the rock and, the Rolling Stones are the greatest rock and roll band in history because I think that they are rock and roll in a way the dead can be if they want. But that's not really, the, you know, the dead incorporate elements of rock and roll. The Rolling Stones were just all about that raw power and, you know, the, the rock and roll songs of their time. They were, you know, I unfortunately, I saw them later, but I was never young enough to see them back in the day when they were, you know, quite the traveling road show as well. But I can only imagine... You know, the Rolling Stones concert back in the early 1970s must have been somewhat like a dead show. Yeah, I saw them in 72. They were incredible. You know, they were incredible every time you see them. But they, you know, it's like, it's funny because when Miss You came out, everyone concluded it's disco. Miss You is probably their best song ever, other than Waiting on a Friend. If you haven't heard that song, Waiting on a Friend. Oh, yeah. Beautiful song. No, they're all great. And, and, you know, my story is I, the first time I saw the Rolling Stones was in 1981 when they. Uh, the, the Start Me Up tour. Uh, they, they were back to the United States for the first time since some girls and a whole group of us went out and saw them in JFK Stadium in Philadelphia to open up the tour. And they walked out and they opened the show with Under My Thumb. And Mick started think, singing and we all thought, oh my God, he sounds so old. And of course, that was 40 years ago and he's still up there singing. And it, it, relatively speaking, that was at the beginning of their career, not the end of their career. But at the time, it felt like yeah, I mean, those guys are just amazing. I saw them, it's, my my 55th birthday was, uh, what was it, 2006, so I bought like 20 tickets to go see them at the MGM Grand in Vegas. I invited all my friends from college, so they all showed up, we had a blast. And Mick's father died the night before the show, so he flew back to England on a private jet, and we all thought he was going to cancel. No, he didn't, he came back and did the show. And we had seats at the very opposite ends of the, you know, where the, the stage is on the one end of the one yard, you know, the zero yard line, we're at the other end. But they have that ramp that goes all the way out to the other side, so that they ended up being great seats. And we just had a blast. I invited Mountain Girl came, and we had a great time. Oh, my. 
That, okay. It's one thing to go to a Rolling Stones show. It's another thing to go to a Rolling Stones show with Mountain Girl. I read, you know, the electric Kool-Aid acid test, right, where Keezy writes about how the, the pranksters with Mountain Girl, and they all went to see the Beatles, and they all went to see the Stones. And I thought, you know, it, it's, it's crazy enough that they're seeing them back during these amazing years, but to be there with Ken Kesey and Mountain Girl and, you know, Garcia seeing these other bands must have just been incredible. Yeah, I actually was with Kesey backstage at a dead show, and I asked him for his autograph. He, he wrote, gave me an invisible autograph. <laughs> he did it without a pen. Sounds like him. It's kind of funny. You know, I know his son is a nice kid. Uh, what's his name? I forget his name at the moment, but, you know, his son's a great guy, and he drives the bus around. Were you, were you uh, around for any of the acid tests, or were that... That was before my time. I lived in New York. It's funny. This is a funny story, when I was in high school, I think it was 10th grade or 11th grade, this friend of mine, Neil, I lived in an apartment building because my father had died, and we moved to an apartment building next to a big old house. This guy, Neil Markowitz, lived in the house, and he and I would play ping pong all the time. And I was one of the more popular kids. He wasn't, but, you know, I was friends with him. So we'd play ping pong. So one time he tells me, oh, yeah, I met this guy. There was a new record store head shop that opened in town. I was in there. And some guy invited me to go to the show tonight. If you want to go, he said, I'll put me on the list and this and that. So Neil was known as a bullshitter. And, you know, he would tell wild tales and no one would ever believe him. So I didn't go to the show. And then a few years later, I came to his house to play ping pong. I see a letter from Mrs. Lenny Hart. I go, What? Yeah, remember I told you a few years ago, I, I went backstage with the Grateful Dead and Mickey Hart was, Mickey Hart went to my high school, Lawrence High School. So he met Mickey and Mickey actually put him on the list plus one. So I could have seen the Dead in 67 or 8, but it was their first show actually the Phil Maurice, 6-14-68. I could have been backstage, what, you know, whatever, but nobody believed Neil and it was actually a true story. So he hung out with the Dead in 68 backstage. And that show, the set list is kind of bizarre. It was their first show at the Fillmore, and you know, they played many shows after that. I went to 21470 as well, which was the last uh, Alligator, I think. That was a great show. Then 42971, TC's last show with the Grateful Dead. Dog Star, St. Stephen, the 11, Love Light. That's a killer show. 51570 had three sets. Acoustic Dead, uh, The Nerfs, and then Electric Dead, and that show ended at sunrise also. And Jerry played all three sets. Played acoustic guitar, pedal steel. That's Harper College, isn't it? No, that's 5270. This is 51570. Harper has one of the best, uh, what's, I can't remember, there's one of the best versions of one of the songs is from Harper College, which I can't remember which one it is right now. But 51570, like I said, Acoustic Dead, where they did really unusual songs, including Katie May. Then, you know, The Nerfs with Jerry on Pedal Steel, and then Electric Dead. That's a classic show. And then, you know, Pilgrim opens the doors, and the sun's coming up. So, you know, 12.31.78, which was the closing of Winterland, he served breakfast at dawn. That was kind of fun. I was at the uh, one of the New Year's shows around the way out the door. They, they gave us a bagel and cream cheese and a little thing of orange juice. Yeah, well, that's cool. I mean, you know, Bill Graham was very hospitable. So, um, 
you know, he was a great guy. He got a bad rap. But, you know, Bob Weir nicknamed him a bad nickname, which was kind of derogatory, but what's he going to do? He can't do anything about it. So, Uncle Bobo. It's not a nice thing to call a guy that survived, you know, the Holocaust. His relatives were killed by the Nazis. Not fun, but he didn't, you know, broadcast any of that. But that's why he was a tough cookie. But he, he really, I mean... He, he, he salvaged that scene, right? The dead and Jefferson Airplane were trying to run the carousel ballroom and didn't really know exactly what they were doing. And he kind of stepped in and, and, and really helped make them and, and give them exposure and send them in the right direction. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, they were legendary bands, but, you know, they weren't concert promoters in the least. They didn't know what they were doing. I mean, when they lived at 710, they were just, you know, you saw that picture from March 3rd, 68, Jerry's walking down the street carrying his guitar. My friend Steve Brown recorded that show. He, he did a live recording of the show. You know, it's the only tape of the show. He was batteries ran out, unfortunately, but he's got a good portion of the show. So speaking of uh, recording of shows, you know, you said you were buddies with Dan Healy. I got to think that, you know, that allowed you to get access to, uh, to plugging into soundboards all through the 80s. Oh, yeah. Well, that's interesting because I was just going to bring that up. Bob Menke, Mr. Tapes, he lived uh, in the Bay Area, so I flew up. And we, him and I drove to Seattle and Portland in 77 in his Porsche. And I brought, I had, it, I had a real to real tape recorder. I don't even remember how I got it up there. But I, mean, I think I drove to his house and then he drove the rest of the way. And so we got, we went to uh, the shows and, and one in the afternoon, the doors were wide open. It was unbelievable. There was nobody in the theater. Doors were open. So we brought the real to real up stairs, put it, plugged it in next to Healy's board. He did that for all four shows. It was amazing. And, you know, the best show was the last one, 10 You know, the, the first three were decent shows, but the last show really was great. So, yeah, I mean, it was fun to sneak a reel-to-reel into the show. You don't do that very often. It was the Paramount Theater in both Portland and Seattle. All four shows, the doors were wide open at 1 o'clock. No security, no nothing. Rumor has it Healy eventually lost his job with the banks. He was letting too many guys plug in. He was basically trading eight balls for uh, for a patch. You know, if you're uh, if if you're bribing the right way, then that's not quite true. That wasn't quite true. It was over money because all these other guys were getting wealthy, and you know, he was sort of the fifth Beatle for Brian Epstein as friend, and he didn't get feel he was getting compensated adequately. So he compensated himself in various ways, and the band found out they didn't like it. I don't know all the gory details, I just know that was what it was. So he got fired because of money issues that he felt he was being deprived of, that he tried to help himself fix it by himself without getting the band's permission. So I don't know all the gory details, but that's what really happened. Now were, you, were you around back in the day when uh, Mickey Hart's father was in charge of the books? Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, as I said, my friend Neil knew them. He somehow became friends with Mickey's parents, so I marginally knew that. But, you know, the guy stole from the band. I mean, that's not cool. And Mickey took it really hard. You can't blame him. I'm surprised he even came back. Billy Kreutzman told me personally he didn't mind being the only drummer. He actually preferred it. You know, him and Mickey are very tight, and they, you know, make a great... Yeah, we, we got a great song out of it, and he's gone. Was that about him? I thought it was about somebody who passed away. Yeah, it's about Lenny Hart. What pivoted me over to that question was I, uh, the song was about Lenny Hart, supposedly. But when, when they played it, um, 
uh, the, the Terrapin family reunion in Alpine Valley in 2002. They came out the first night and they opened with just a musical rendition of the other one, which, uh, not the other one, he's gone, which everyone took as a message you know, talking about Jerry that night. But uh, either way, it's a beautiful tune. You know, those guys obviously were pretty broken up when Jerry died. Tragic loss. But, you know, the guy's health was, he was, it wasn't drugs that killed him, it was diabetes, being overweight. And someone told me recently, maybe Vinacci, he loved going to 7 Eleven and buying, you know, dinner at 7 Eleven, whatever they sell there, you know, cheesy food. He didn't eat, you know. When Vinacci took good care of him, that, you know, if he'd stayed with her, he might have still been alive. Who knows? But. He moved on from her, which is a big mistake, because she was a health nut. And Keelan, you know, is a gorgeous little, she's not little anymore, she's a beautiful daughter of his. And, you know, she really took care of the guy. And maybe that's why he didn't want to be taken. He liked doing his vices. And I, this is another story that I, uh, you know, I was living in San Diego, and uh, my best friend who became a judge came out for holidays, Christmas, and Jerry was playing at the La Paloma Theater in Encinitas, California. It's a small theater, seats 200 people. So I got tickets for my wife and my best friend, and uh, we went to the show. My other good friend was a sound man. So at the end of the show, we're up hanging out on stage. Everybody left, but you know, I knew the sound man, so I didn't get kicked out. And uh, I said, where's... And then I looked down, there's a set list on the ground. Nicky Hopkins was playing with them at the time, and Jerry had handwritten out a set list. In the La Valencia Hotel, he had one of the pads they give you in hotels. He wrote it out with all the keys, and I still have it, and uh, so I pick it up with great souvenir. I also taped the shows, the two of them, and I have the tickets. So it's a little-known fact, which will become well-known now. I have the only tapes of those two shows, because I never disseminated them. And at some point I will, because, you know, what's the point of keeping tapes? They should be out there in the real world. But I kept them, and so I have the set list, the tapes, and, you know, the tickets. So I asked um, Charles Aikens, was the sound man. I go, Charles, where's my... Oh, well, if your wife's not here, there's only one place you could be. In the green room with Jerry. And she wasn't even a deadhead. So my friend and I, and my friend didn't bring adequate clothes. His name's Peter Doft. He's a judge. He's a retired judge. He was number one in two law schools simultaneously. He went to Boston, and then he came to San Diego for one year. He was number one in my law school and his. The only person in the history of the world that's number one in two law schools simultaneously. Guy's brilliant, but he didn't bring any clothes. So my wife made yoga pants, so he had on like purple yoga pants, t-shirt, and then she gave him a scarf. He looked totally ridiculous. So we go backstage and knock on the door, come in, blah, blah. So there's my wife sitting next to Jerry, and she's not a deadhead in the least. And she's just got a smile on her face. And Jerry knows me from, you know, like 21370. This is 74. Or, yeah, I think it was 74 or 5. 75. 12, 28, 29, 75. He opens his briefcase. Yeah. My friend looked like a narc, for one thing. And actually, Don Kahn said, what are you, a narc? It's what he said to my friend, and we're high on mushrooms. Jerry opens his briefcase. All it's got in it is crumpled up Marlboro cigarette packs and crumpled up bindles. Bindles. You know, bindles are what you have cocaine in little white. Sure. They're all crumpled up, nothing left but crumpled up dirty briefcase. So it's funny, because afterwards, my friend, he's OCD. 
I can't believe how messy Jerry's briefcase was. That's all he can say. Meeting Jerry. Come on. So then we went to New Year's Eve, which is at the Keystone Berkeley, and John Kahn actually came up to us and apologized. I know he wasn't a narc, and that was kind of rude of me, blah, blah, blah. That is all I remember from the New Year's Eve show. I looked it up recently. It was recorded. I didn't realize, you know, Bob Weir showed up. It was like half the Grateful Dead was there. I don't remember a single thing about that show other than John Kahn apologized, which is interesting because, you know, a lot of those shows, it's just the same way. You don't remember a thing about the show, but you know you were there. Like I saw Hendrix at Bill Maurice. 1231-69, I don't remember a thing about the show other than I was there, but there's a recording of the band of Gypsies. So. So, so that leads me to another question. Both Larry and I are you know, much bigger Garcia fans than almost anyone else in the band. It sounds like you are as well. For me, on any given night, I'd rather go see the Garcia band play than, than see the Grateful Dead play. And for you, like, were you a bigger Garcia band fan, or your best nights seeing the Grateful Dead nights? Well, you know, it was, I would, it's kind of comparable. I saw him play... When I was just telling you, in, in 75, he played at the Golden Bear in Huntington Beach and with Merle, and there was only like 20 people in the audience. So that was kind of fun. I was I taped that show as well. So I have three shows of Jerry Garcia that nobody else on the planet has. And if I croak... So Larry and I will both give you our addresses, and you can, uh, you can drop those tapes in the mail tomorrow, and we'll happily accept them. <laughs> I'm actually starting a, a, a company called deadbay.net. It's going to be a company that just sells Grateful Dead stuff. So that's going to be one of the things. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to... Those shows will be disseminated, let's just put it that way. I'm not going to sell the shows per se, but you guys will definitely get them. How's that? Awesome. Yeah, I was like 20 people in the audience of Merle and Jerry. I mean, it's unbelievable. Well, I saw the Garcia Band one night in 1983 across the river from St. Louis in a little bar called Stages. And my, I couldn't find, none of my friends were into the Grateful Dead at the time, so I convinced one of my buddies to go by telling him I'd buy his beer all night. So he drove me over there. We waited in line. They opened the doors. Him and everybody else ran to the bar. I walked up to the stage. <laughs> and I, I, I was, you know, five feet from Jerry all night as he just sat there and played a Jerry Garcia band show. It was my first Jerry Garcia band show, and I... I it was unbelievable, and everybody else was happy to be there. But they, they, you know, there was no crowd, no nothing. We just had the place to ourselves almost. Yeah, well, that's what Jerry was about. You know, it's like I realized recently because I wrote this new book called Jerry Garcia, which is coming out in the fall. I knew the guy. You know, we he never invited me for dinner, but you know, I hung out with him a lot. You know, he knew me, I knew him. He was just a regular guy that all he wanted to do was play music. He didn't want to be a guru. He didn't want to be anyone. You know teacher he just wanted to play music you know like phil phil lesh wants to play music he doesn't want to be a businessman and you know that's why him and mountain girl broke up because jerry's priority was playing music not being a father or husband and deborah coons didn't care about that because she was a groupie and if she hears this she'll probably get pissed but whatever that's a fact she was a groupie that stole him from his real wife mountain girl what, what stories do you tell in Jerry Garcia that you haven't already told in Captain Trips and in One More Saturday Night? Well, uh, Rather, maybe what's the focus of this book as compared to the other two? I was subletting a place in L.A., and the uh, landlady was a young woman who, tragically, her father and brother died in an avalanche. They were mad and Mount Kilimanjaro, wherever it was. And so she inherited or got life insurance of millions of dollars. So she started a publishing company. So I gave her my book, and you know I didn't say anything. 
few months later, she goes, well, you, I'll do this book, but you have to transcribe it, digitize it. I said, I'm not doing that, because, you know, for me to do it, it would cost me money, a few thousand bucks. Plus, she didn't give me an advance, so she decided to do it. So I thought it was just going to be my regular book. She goes, no, it's going to be, they gave it a different cover, changed the name, and then they wanted me to do a few new chapters, which are basically interviews with Grateful Dead uh, people that are kind of celebrities, like Sunshine Garcia, Bill Lehman, who's the bass player for the Nerps, Craig Marshall, who plays lead guitar in Cubensis. There's another band called the Electric Wasteband that I interviewed Robert Harvey, who's an amazing guitar player, and several other people. You know, I interviewed like 10 or 15 people. And they all talk about what Jerry Garcia meant to them. It's really kind of heartwarming. And then she wanted me to all stick uh, uh, anecdotes in the middle of the book. See, the first book is just, I'm a lawyer. I know how to research. It's very detail-oriented. Facts, nothing but the facts. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit it. It's not the greatest book ever written, but it was the first book ever written, and it was very uh, accurate. You know, I left out all the bad stuff. You know, I put very little references to his drug use. And, uh, yeah, leave that to Rock Scully. And it's an interesting story because I, I got a copy of my book that I bought somewhere. I don't remember where. And I was going to give it away to a friend. I opened it up. It says, to Lisa, love, Jer. That was Garcia giving my book to somebody, and somehow I ended up with it. And I didn't even realize it. I had it for a couple of years. And my friend goes, you can't give me this book because Jerry signed it. You know, he bought it for somebody. So that made me feel good. Jerry gave my book to somebody. But, you know, it's like if you write a book about Dan Humiston, he's not going to like the book because he knows his life better than anybody else would. You know, you can't. Jerry lived it. So, you know, whatever I wrote was skimming the surface. You know, I did a lot of detail work, but, you know, he knows his life better than anybody else ever will. So, you know, he might have, he probably read it with a chuckle on his face, you know, but there's nothing in that book that surprised him, let's face it, because he lived it. Well, I look forward to reading that. I, I, I really am a big fan of um, Big Steve's book, Home Before Midnight, and the stories that he shares about Garcia, especially about uh, the drug treatments and everything and how hard they really tried to, to be with him, and he would just, you know, come home from treatment and say, I don't want any of you to go home and they knew he was walking up the driveway to go start again. And, and you know, you, to, to know somebody who was like that involved and, and, you know, really sharing it, I thought was very powerful. So it's... No, I mean, it's, you know, have you ever smoked uh, crack or heroin? I have not. <laughs> I have. Okay, I smoked crack once. You know, crack is like cocaine, hard to call. But the best high you'll ever have. My friend was a crackhead. But, but we call it freebase. Yeah, that's right, freebase. It's amazing stuff. It's the best high you'll ever have in your life other than sex. But it's addicting. And I'm a very intelligent guy. I'm a lawyer. I tried it once just for hell of it, but there's no way I was going to do it again. Jerry got addicted to that stuff. He didn't shoot it. He smoked it. And, you know, when you're Jerry Garcia, you your life is not easy. When you got got 100 people counting on you to survive, you got, you know, people think you're God. And, you know, it's just he wasn't any of that. He was just a humble guy that liked to play guitar. And it turned, you know, like I said, at the uh, 15th anniversary shows, he was a humble guy sitting in a black leather armchair talking to anybody who'd want to come into that room, which there weren't many because they didn't know, people didn't know about it. But the lucky ones like me and whoever else who knew about it could hang out with him. He's totally relaxed, enjoying being with people. It's a special occasion, you know. And I'm a musician myself, 
And, you know, when you're at a gig like this thing, when I was at the La Paloma Theater, my wife was sitting next. You know, after a gig, you're kind of worn out, done your shtick, you just want to kick back, you don't really want to get in deep conversations with people. That's a whole different level. This was like he's just relaxed, hanging out with his fans and chit-chat. And, you know, he really liked Brent. That's another thing. If you watch these recent shows, him and Brent really got on. Sad that Brent OD'd, whatever it happened, because Brent was a super talented guy. He brought a lot of cool songs into the mix that they hadn't done. Great voice, great energy, you know, and a sweet guy. But he got fucked up on drugs, you know. Well, I'm glad you tell that story because, you know, from the audience, we would always look up on stage and it seemed that every time, you know, he and Brent were playing Dear Mr. Fantasy or doing anything together, Jerry always had a big smile on his face. And, and, and we had this feeling that, that they must have really connected. But, you know, you're sitting in the audience, so you're just guessing. But it, it's, it's good to hear a little affirmation of no, that. they were tight as clams. And, you know, like I said, I was friends with Brent. Here's another story that's fun. I was backstage at Madison Square Garden, I think it was September 79, and I said to Brent, hey man, you want to go to Chinatown? He goes, sure, let's go. So we took a cab down there, we go to the Wo Hop, which is the most famous Chinese restaurant in Chinatown, it's down a place. I love Wo Hop, cold tea after four. It's a great place, great food. So it's down a flight of stairs, most of the restaurants are up here, but theirs is in the basement. We walk down the stairs. Yeah, on Mott Street. Yeah, exactly. So you turn, when you walk down the stairs, you can't see the restaurant. It's just a glass door or whatever. And then you turn left, it's full of deadheads. They start cheering when we walk in. Brent's here, wow! You know, it was really fun. That was a fun thing. You know, but Jerry was just a regular guy. You know, I've been thinking about it lately. Just a guy that wanted to play music. And the whole phenomenon, you know, he became like the guru guy in, you know, 710 Ashbury, the dead were the, you know, cultural center of the whole psychedelic counterculture. And, you know, they really weren't, but that's what they were. Because there's that interview you see way back when, you know, when they're in the living room talking and this and that. You know, Phil talks and, you know, they just want to have, I think Jerry said, we just want to live a peaceful life. And we're not politicians, we just want to play music. And you couldn't say it any better than that. Yeah. And then they moved to Marin, and, you know, that was a whole different story up there. And then he made a ton of money. That didn't hurt. But, you know, then the drugs kind of took over. I don't know what year that was, but whenever it was, it was downhill from there. But, but I love some of those early interviews when, when Garcia, you know, like the, the Hugh Hefner interview on Playboy After Dark. Yes. When he's, like, you know, talking about, like, the dragon chasing its own tail and, you know, the, the two-drummer thing and... You know, as he's describing who they are as musicians and what they're trying to accomplish and really what they don't want to do, it's some of the funniest banter um, are those, like, 68, 69 interviews. And he's wearing that serape the whole time. Yeah, that serape. He was, was very cool. He wasn't even wearing glasses. That's one of the few times he wasn't wearing glasses. So, you know, I knew his brother. That's another thing. I knew Tiff. I became friends with Tiff. because one of my best friends worked with Grateful Dead Merchandising, and so that's where Tiff worked. So... I would. I was actually Tiff's roadie. They every August first, they have a big show in this Golden, not Golden Gate Park. It's a Jerry Garcia Amphitheater, South San Francisco. So one year, I was his roadie, and uh, I, you know, he Tiff was a super nice guy, and you know, I would go to his house and stuff. You know, Jerry was his brother, man. What are you gonna say? <laughs> and then I knew his son. I gave his son Tiff Garcia's son. Ruben Garcia is the only male in the family. They're all females. Jerry had all daughters. I used to give Ruben Garcia guitar lessons. I thought that was kind of cool. 
Ruben was a sweetheart. Ruben and Cherise, you know, he got named after that song, I guess. I don't know. Tiff passed away recently, which is sad, but that's the way it goes. It does. It does. Wow. Well, Sandy, this is just amazing. And, um, you know, as, as I said at the very beginning, when we just dove straight into this and passed aside all of our normal banter and chit chat, um, I, I, I can tell from the look on Rob's face, uh, he and I could probably go on like this all night with you if given the opportunity. And uh, the only reason we won't is because we feel so bad for Dan Humiston having to sit there at the board all night listening <laughs> to all of this. Yeah. Well, 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 Sandy, I'll, I'll ask you one thing, so I'm going to bring it full circle. So I was at the first Bonnaroo, which is kind of the Woodstock of our generation, and I was much like yourself where I got sucked in or I got pulled into the backstage and I ended up becoming the bartender backstage when I didn't have a job there when I showed up, but I had a bunch of friends that worked for, for Panic and worked for String Cheese and worked for other bands. Nice. So somehow all of a sudden I'm back there and I get upgraded to an all access, you know, do anything pass. And by the end of it, the Superfly guys basically said, Hey, you know, do you work for us? I'm like, I don't. They're like, well, do you want to? And I ended up working for Superfly for the next couple of years after that. Wow. So my question to you is, did Michael Lang and Artie Kornfeld ever track you down and say, okay, man, now you're in. If we ever do another gig, you know, we're, we're going to use you for whatever, you know, our next uh, promoted thing is after Woodstock. I wish. No, they didn't. You know, they were New Yorkers. New Yorkers have a different attitude. So, you know, if they were Californians, it might have happened. But Woodstock was a once in a lifetime experience. You know, it's just one of those things that, happened organically. How I ended up on stage, I'll never know, but I was on stage the entire time. I never even went into the audience at once. And, you know, like I said, I was hanging out at the airplane, hanging out, you know, with all the bands. It was just a lot of fun. And the backstage area was the size of a football field. It was, there was a metal fence around it, and, you know, the helicopters would land, drop the bands off, and then, you know, they, they would just hang out backstage. The, the on stage was not that big. You know, the airplane hung out on stage for like eight hours. I felt bad for them. They were supposed to go on at like one or two. They went on at six in the morning. You know, it was like really a long night for them. But they put on a decent show. I just think it's so cool that your first dead show was at Woodstock. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't even a deadhead until that show. Then, you know, Pigpen won me over. Hendrix kind of was a big letdown because he was Monday morning. At, half the audience was gone. Everybody's tired and wasted. And, you know, I guess the show was okay, but I saw Hendrix three times. That was my least favorite one. I saw him on New Year's Eve, 12-31-69. I also saw him at Hunter College in 67, which was a great show. Um, you know, the best act of Woodstock was actually sliding the family stone. They got the whole place dancing like crazy. And Santana was great. I mean, you know, a lot of great bands there. Don't get me wrong, but the one that really stood out of my mind was sliding the family stone. Everyone danced from start to finish. So you were talking about some of the great dead shows uh, in New York in 1970. Did you make it up to Harper College in Binghamton for the uh, for those shows? I didn't. That was, no. I just uh, did the shows around New York City and Stony Brook, my alma mater. So I, I also went, like I said, the Capitol Theater was a great venue. And it's interesting, I can't remember the guy's name, but nobody taped those shows except this one guy, I think his name's Marty, and he taped every single show with a quality tape recorder. So thank God there's good tape for those shows. Those shows are really special. 
we, we actually did a full episode about those shows, and we talked about all the different songs they broke out during um, during that run. I grew up uh, in Westchester, so for me, the Cap Theater is my hometown venue. Oh wow! So uh, you know, we saw a ton of Cap shows, but for me, it was you know seeing Fish and Max Creek, and you know a lot of other smaller bands, the Zen Tricksters, and everyone else was playing around that time. Yeah, I think they did like one of those shows. I'm a hog for you, baby. I think that was at the Manhattan Center. No, it was in Manhattan. They did. Um, I'm a Oh boy, into I'm a hog for you, baby. Yeah, I was at that show, so you know I happen to be some legendary shows by pure coincidence. Those two, when they released the the the, the original box set with all the, uh, the the first CDs, so many roads or, or whatever it was called, the Golden Road, I don't remember. On the Skull and Roses remaster, they throw those two songs on there, and you know they talk about it was the only time they ever played Oh Boy. And they only played I'm a Hog for You, Honey, a couple of times, but it was the only time they said the Jerry and Pigpen sang together. Wow, interesting. I tend to doubt that, but maybe it's the only time it's on tape. But, you know, they did a lot of weird stuff. You know, I just read recently, I can't remember, but they did a lot of, like, standard cover songs. Really, you know, just garden variety cover tunes back in 65, you know, that I don't think are on tape. They played, like, at the pizza place, what was it called? Where they played, you know, five... Magoo's. Magoo's in Palo Alto. Yeah, and they played, you know, some just really random stuff. And that's right when Phil joined the band. You know, Phil was a trumpet player, not a bass player, but the guy's a genius, so he filled in rather nicely. And, you know, Phil, what's Phil sing? You know, that's Box of Rain I just heard recently. You know, a lot of people poo-poo Phil's vocals, but, you know, they're decent enough. He's 80 years old, for God's sakes. But, you know, one thing I was going to mention is, you know, Phil's genre of music is totally... Bobby's like the cover band. Dead and Company are a cover band for the dead. They're a second-rate cover band. Phil and Friends is the real deal. He plays with virtuoso musicians. Phil does all the really rare stuff. You know, Bobby, I think, caught on a little bit, but he doesn't have that same kind of sensibility. I gotta say, I think Billy and the Kids are putting on a, a pretty good mix right now of great musicians as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, Billy and the Kids. Just, you know, what can I say? I'm not Bob Weir's biggest fan. But he's a hell of a kind of a nice guy. And if he'd stick to his own songs, he'd be doing a lot better. That's my opinion. Boy, Sandy, you are preaching to the choir here, my friend. Every time I go, I'm like, what the hell? What the hell is wrong with Weather Report Suite? Play Weather Report Suite. Yeah, exactly. You know, let it grow. I mean, yeah. They're playing on my birthday, okay? I'm, I bought tickets, which are ridiculous. $600 for two tickets. Give me a break. When I saw The Dead, it was three fifty a ticket. $3.50. $600 for Halloween. My birthday's Halloween. You know, I was saying I'm not going to go. I went, you got to go. It's your birthday. You know, it's going to be incredible. And they're playing San Diego, where I live, on October 27th. So I will be there. Well, we should hook up. But, you know, Phil's, Phil's playing Halloween at the Cap Theater. Back, yeah, I'm not flying back. Either. Yeah, but, but me and Sandy, live in, we live in San Diego. I'm from Carlsbad for me to, Car, to Chula Vista. That's right down the street. I didn't. I thought you lived back east. I didn't know you lived east. No, I'm in Carlsbad. Oh, cool, let's get together, man. I can at least show you those tapes. You can look at them and hold them. <laughs> Sit there. No, 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 no. You guys tell me i got to be out there for that. I, I'm flying out. Give me two days right. to get a plane ticket. If you're going to start messing with those tapes, i got to see Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I mean, I am going to disseminate them now that the whole world knows about them. I, I'm kind of obligated to let them out. But uh, I haven't quite figured it out because we're starting this, like, sort of like an eBay thing, but just for deadheads, called deadbay.com. And we're in the process of getting it up and running. So it's just going to be Grateful Dead stuff we're selling. 
it's going to be a fun thing. And we've got, you know, we've registered. I've got the name registered. We've got a corporation set up, and we, you know, we have to launch it. So it's going to be a fun thing. You know, I have so much memorabilia; it's ridiculous. If you want to wait a minute, I can show you that set list that I have from uh, the Wild Plumber Theater. I I would have a minute to wait for that. Yes. Okay, I'll be right back. In the space between we have right now, I think we just uh, do our cannabis bit for a minute and say congratulations to Connecticut for legalizing adult use cannabis. And I think that's all we need to say about cannabis this week. And, uh, you know, we, just, we go back to the Grateful Dead. I was driving the other day listening to the big Steve show. And the first guy who called in said, Steve, I'm calling in to let you know that Connecticut just went legal. And Steve went crazy. It was like, you know, a kid in a candy store. He, I love his enthusiasm over this. He's like, that made my day. That's the best news. Here we go. Another state. We're on a, you know, it's some, I think he said some like 40 states now have uh, cannabis laws, one kind or another, permitting medical or adult use. But I just love that big Steve enthusiasm as well. But, you know, it's just like you. It's like Connecticut. Awesome. Are right, you guys ready? We're, we're ready. Here's the ticket. I don't know if you can see it. Oh, yeah. Wow. December 28th. And then here's the set list. <laughs> That's his handwriting? Yes, it is. You know, they released a, 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 a Jerry Pure or Garcia Live album, and one of the little inserts they gave you was a photocopy of a little piece of paper, even with a sample cigarette burn in it that was supposedly a Garcia handwritten set list. That's very cool. This is the actual set list that was on the piano that Nicky Hopkins was playing. I had Jerry's chair, which unfortunately... I had to get, I moved, but this is a letter from Carol Advala, who's Dick's wife, and I just noticed the date is August 1st. I, Carol Advala, do hereby certify that I have personal knowledge that the brown leather chair in the possession of Sandy Troy was taken from Front Street with a grateful dead or hurt. Said chair was used by Jerry Garcia on numerous occasions. So I had that chair for like 10 years, and then unfortunately... I had a friend move it, and he didn't keep it. I could have killed him, but that's life. It's just an ugly brown chair. But Jerry did sit on it. I've had the same thing happen with some of my best memorabilia, where I've, where I've lost it. I had, um, uh, who, was, who was Garcia's guitar maker for a long time? Um, Doug Irwin. Yeah, thank you, Doug Irwin. I, I had a, a Doug Irwin signed poster of, you know, the uh, tiger leaned up against a mirror, so you could see the front and the back of it, and, you know, signed. Uh, nicely framed, and somehow that thing got lost. And I was like, ah, like all my great memorabilia. And that was just before Irwin passed away. So never, you know, can never recreate it. Yeah, I'll show you the book that I got that has Jerry's signature on it and stuff. I almost gave it away. And goes, That's Jerry's signature, man. You can't give me that book. It was a friend of mine, a musician. I was... That's a good friend. Yeah, it was nice of him because I didn't even take it that seriously. And then I looked at it. Sure enough, it was his autograph. That's unbelievable. Uh, Sandy, when is uh, the Garcia book supposed to uh, be released? Sometime in the fall, maybe around Christmas. We'd love to well, get you back on to promote that book. You know, when you're ready to drop it, we're ready to have you back on to speak to the audience. This is when I used to be cool. Yeah, you look like Hunter Thompson. That's me but I, when I was a cool guy. But here, here, I don't know if you can read it. It says, Carrie, with love, Jared. From, what is it Love Jared. Garcia's signing your book about him and giving it to somebody else. That's that's you can't beat that, man. No, you can't. I was so shocked. You know, I didn't even notice it. And, oh my god. 
That shows he liked my book to some extent. He wouldn't have given away his presents. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, I, I know I've given your book away as presents before. I've, I've certainly bought it for people to, to give for, for Christmas or give for birthdays. So, you know, thank you for all the work you've done, uh, you know, for the community. And these stories have been absolutely amazing, man. So, like, this has been... Um, well, this fan of mine wanted my book. I didn't even have it, so I had to order it from Amazon to sell my own book. But, yeah, I mean... The new books there, she's actually putting out in hardbacks too, which I was shocked. So I thought it was just a digital thing, but it's going to be hardback and paperback. So I'll do a bunch of book signings and you know publicity stuff. But I'm going to be up there August 1st through 9th, which is the days between Jerry's birthday when he passed away, and on August 1st is a big show with Stu Allen. Well, uh, I was going to say I think we should uh, let Sandy get get to his movie if he's still going. Uh, and just, you know, say thank you so much for, for being on today for as long as you have and being so gracious to your time, man. This has been awesome. No, it was great. And then uh, August 6th and 7th, there's a thing at Laytonville, which is uh, up two hours north of San Francisco. There's the Darkstar Orchestra, the David Nelson Band, and the incredible, what did they call the string band? Whatever it is, several bands are playing at that thing. It's a campout thing for two days. It's all kinds of festivities on that week, the days between. Beautiful. Okay. So, Sandy, Troy, thank you so much. We hope that uh, you will consider joining us again uh, uh, in the fall or Christmas whenever the Jerry Garcia book comes out so we can help you promote it and, and hear more of your stories. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it, and uh, thank you. Okay. Well, thank you. Our guest today has been uh, Sandy Troy. For those of you who dropped in to listen to us, you uh, – you got a great show. Uh, we, we've all learned things today, and uh, uh, the stories have just been absolutely amazing. Um, and we will look forward to uh, our shows next week and other guests that we're going to bring in. Uh, Rob, any parting words from you? Uh, yeah, Rob Hunt signing off, who was definitely not number one in his law school class. Um, I don't think Larry was either. Uh, so <laughs> for all of us that were, you know, lower down the ranks of law school, um, you know, it's okay. We're all still attorneys. Um, but thanks so much. Listen to more Grateful Dead, smoke more cannabis, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Uh, you know, as I always say, eat more acid too. So um, have fun out there. Be responsible, and we'll talk soon. Adios. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Sandy. And uh, Rob mentioned at the beginning, but let me also just give a special thanks and a shout out to Dave Brampman, uh, attorney in San Diego. If you have any intellectual property issues, he's your guy. We love Dave. And uh, thanks so much to him for helping set us up with Sandy Troy. And Sandy, that would really be fun if we can all get together out there and bring Dave into the mix as well. I think we'll have quite a night. Yeah, we're all attorneys, you know. We'll have a good old time. Uh, that could be scary, but at least we like the Grateful Dead. So although I, is Brampman a big deadhead? Not really, but he likes them. I mean, you know, they, they play great music. What's not to Everybody like? Everybody likes them. Okay. Everyone, thank you again. Uh, Larry Mishkin signing off. Have a great week. Stay safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Talk to you soon. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. 
I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.